and then we saw two black cats big black cats about the same size that picked out a sheep and a lamb and cornered it in the corner of the field and were about to attack seeing is believing and i have no proof of what i saw that day other than what i can describe it was huge it was like the weightlifter of cats welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of britain's big cats we also discuss the bigger picture i'm rick minter and thanks for joining me Welcome to episode 54 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in early July 2021, if you're listening to this one on schedule. Our guest is Darren Naish. Many of you will know him from his high profile in recent years with the Tet Zoo blog. Darren is a dinosaur geek, a great communicator on aspects of science and evolutionary biology, and the particular topic of Big Cats Wild in Britain features amongst his many interests. So we are, of course, chuffed to have him on the podcast. Darren, welcome along. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. I've listened to all episodes so far. I've really enjoyed it. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Good stuff. We won't test you on past episodes, but uh, nice (laughs) to know that you're with us. You are, first and foremost, described as a vertebrate paleontologist, but I know you have other interests beyond that. So can you tell us what the main thrust of your activity is? I am qualified as a vertebrate paleontologist. I did a PhD specialising in lower Cretaceous dinosaurs of southern England, which I finished in around about 2006. I write widely on uh, living and extinct animals. That involves a combination of doing technical research. I mean, you know, I do fieldwork, dug up new species in the Sahara and uh, done lots of fieldwork in Eastern Europe, Romania in particular. I have also published on the conservation biology of South American mammals, the history of cats, your special interest area, the evolution of birds, what we know about the bird fossil record, and quite a lot of scholarly work on mystery animals, sea serpents, not necessarily saying they're real animals, but what have people uh, written about them, how have people evaluated claimed sea monster sightings. The British big cat mystery is, is among my top sort of 10 major interests. You've already mentioned the, the blog, Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at tetzoo.com. I've done quite a few books, the newest of which is Dinopedia, which comes out probably September 2021. So, uh, oh, and I also work for the BBC Natural History Unit at the moment. So I am uh, deeply involved in the natural history filmmaking world at the moment. And I don't know how long that will last for, but uh, fingers crossed, frankly. Well, excellent. Yeah, well, they've recruited well. The book coming out, is, is that aimed at a general audience or adults or children or what? Yeah, it's, uh, Dinopedia is aimed at a general audience. It's not written for specialists. I mean, on the subject of dinosaurs, there's this kind of stigma that things written for dinosaurs always have to be written for kids. But it's like, I mean, I think adults are interested in the subject as well. I'm being you know, facetious, I know that adults are interested. <laughs> there is, in general, a lack of um, popular level books on prehistoric animals. This particular book is a kind of tour through our developing knowledge of where we're at right now with dinosaurs, because as I'm sure you know, things have changed uh, remarkably, even just this century, within the last couple of decades. 
So, yes, in fact, I was party to a discussion of artists. I don't know how you would describe them, but people who illustrate uh, dinosaur books and dinosaur websites and dinosaur art. And they were saying it's quite challenging to keep up to date with some of the field research, which is presenting new morphological interpretations from fossil finds and analysis of the morphology of some of these creatures. Yeah, the field is termed paleo art, the reconstruction of the animals of the past. And you could say it, it is hard to keep up with because now finds are coming in so quickly. But what's perhaps maybe more interesting is the fact that there's widespread recognition these days that there's an awful lot of stuff that we don't know and we almost can't ever know. And there's a kind of general acceptance that there's some things that we're allowed to speculate on. And there's all these you know ridiculous number of possibilities when you look at the behavior and life appearance and biology of living animals, it's really, it's a, it's a totally different game from uh, the mid 20th century view of dinosaurs. They were all gray and lived in swamps. <laughs> yeah. And of course the artists then at work on these subjects are actually very influential in their work because they are actually framing our perceptions of these creatures that we're thinking about. Darren, if people want to follow your work on social media or uh, websites, what's the best place to start looking to find you? Tetrapod Zoology is kind of my uh, brand, and I started blogging in 2006. I'm at the fourth iteration of Tetrapod Zoology, so that's the main output for my um, popular writings. I'm at TetZoo on Twitter. And Tetrapod Zoology, I cover everything from, you know, writing about the biology, evolution, life appearance of dinosaurs and other extinct uh, ancient animals, pterosaurs, the flying reptiles from the age of dinosaurs. I do a lot of stuff on those marine reptiles. I've written a lot about mystery animals, cryptozoology. My most popular articles are on Bigfoot. That seems to be hugely, <laughs> hugely popular of all the things I've written. Yeah, e even beyond America. That is a whole another subject, as they say, you know, you know, Bigfoot. We, we should avoid it because I could just talk about that for hours, not just in terms of um, the phenomenon itself, but also in terms of it as a sociocultural phenomenon. The fact that thanks to a one TV series in particular, uh, you know, here in the UK, we've now got a growing population of people that are not just fascinated by the phenomenon. I mean, I always say with Mystery Animal Reports, no matter what is at the bottom of them, whether there's a real flesh and blood animal or not, this is a fascinating phenomenon that's worthy of study, even if it is only a sociocultural thing. But you've also got a huge number of people that have been inspired to actually spend more time in the wilderness. I think sometimes kind of kidding themselves in the UK, they could find Bigfoot in the UK. This is actually a growing point of view. I don't want to be too mean towards that view because anything that's kind of encouraging people to engage more with the outdoors and with nature you know i'm sure i'm sure you'd say the same thing it's like as soon as you have as soon as you hook someone into an interest yep. in wild places what's the next step it's basically you know if you've got a connection to a wild place you want a green place it doesn't have to be wild it can be in the middle of a city yes. but um you know it encourages people to want these areas to persevere into the future and for me that's absolutely key you know we've got to do everything we can to encourage people to be more interested in uh, preserving yeah. and protecting green spaces yeah collateral benefits becoming more alert and becoming advocates of nature and noticing more about the subtle detail of nature if those big charismatic things whether they're real or not encourage that that's got to be helpful whatever age you are <laughs> so yeah absolutely yep, yeah yeah and this great term tetrapod 
uh, which you use as your brand. It's a four-footed animal, technically, but of course there's a great deal more to it to that. You've hinted at some of uh, the meaning of tetrapod, but in a nutshell, how do you summarise what tetrapod is? So um, increasingly in uh, scientific discussions of animals, we talk about what are called clades. A clade is a group of organisms where everyone in the group shares the same single ancestor. And tetrapoda is a clade. So it's a group of animals. Everyone descends from one single ancestral species. Now, that single ancestral species was itself a kind of fish. So tetrapods are a specialised subgroup of fish. Specifically, they are lobe-finned bony fishes, animals akin to coelacanths and lungfishes. And tetrapods are the group of lobe-finned bony fishes that evolved limbs and digits. So round about very approximately 400 million years ago, a new group of these weird fishes evolved. The tetrapods, they evolved limbs and digits for whatever reason. It's quite complicated why they evolved those features. And they took over the land. They gave rise to the amphibians, the reptiles, the birds and the mammals. So once you are within that clade, you descend from an ancestor that has digits and limbs. But of course, evolution happens. Things change. So on many, many occasions, on hundreds of occasions, tetrapods have modified their digits and limbs. And of course, in many cases, have actually lost them partially or entirely. So snakes and dolphins and limbless amphibians and so on, they're all tetrapods. They are part of that clade. But basically, it's reptiles, amphibians, birds and mammals living and extinct. Those are the tetrapods. Even if we can't see, they're four feet <laughs> even if they've lost them over evolutionary time yeah or we can't see all four of them that's right yeah yeah the evolutionary thing is is it going to be a common factor and we'll come on to that uh, in the latter part of our discussion when we get back to british big cats in terms of your thinking the main sort of pretense for having you on was to sort of talk about the the deep geological time history of cats and big cats in britain and europe can we first of all just hear about the research paper that you published, I think it was 2013, on this Canadian lynx that was shot in Devon around um, 1903, it's thought, isn't it? And the Bristol Museum and Art Gallery turned it up, didn't they, and brought it to your attention? Yeah, I'm good friends with a zoologist called Max Blake, who I think today is regarded as an entomologist. I think he works on beetles. And in 2010, Max mentioned that he'd, um, while curating specimens uh, in the collections of Bristol Museum and Art Gallery, he'd been surprised to discover this lynx, suggested to be a Canada lynx. Yeah, and that there was documentation showing that it had been shot in 1903, or circa 1903, near Newton Abbott in Devon. And I'm like, do you realise how significant that is? If the specimen exists and there's paperwork, uh, a paper trail essentially showing that um, it was it was shot in the wild. The accompanying documentation um, said that it had attacked two dogs and a gentleman whose name I can't remember had um, shot it and he'd donated it to a, another person, a Mr. Hebb, I think. No, it was Mr. Nibbler was the one who shot it and Mr. Hebb was the one who procured it for the museum and they had it stuffed and there it is, a, a mounted lynx. So I think this is definitely worthy of a scientific paper and we did every kind of analysis that we could do on this specimen in order to, first of all, confirm exactly what kind of lynx it was. I've said that it was a Canada lynx, 
but the actual specimen itself is a bit ambiguous. It does have some Canada Lynx features, but it also has a few features that are seen in bobcats. And both of those species are variable enough across their enormous ranges that, as surprising as it might seem, there's a few populations where you actually struggle to um, differentiate them, especially young ones and especially where they've been a bit distorted through taxidermy. Because you couldn't get a DNA hit from any of the samples of fur or anything. No, no, that's right. So the final paper involves like a a kind of dream team of people that um, might work on a a British big cat. Greg Larson, who's a a, a well-known paleo genomicist, and Ross Barnett, who's also an ancient DNA guy, and in fact regarded as one of the world's experts on uh, the DNA of um, extinct and old cats. Manabu Sakamoto, who's a a well-known morphometrist, who works on, he's published a load of stuff on uh, the proportions of the skulls of cats, and uh, Charlotte King and Jeff Jeff Noel, a bunch of other people as well. We um, tried to extract DNA and were unsuccessful, not totally surprising. It is often difficult to get good DNA from, from old museum specimens, partly because of the preservatives that have used on them due to contamination over the years, lots of human handling, that kind of thing. We took strontium isotope measurements from the bones and teeth in order to see if they would give us some indication as to where the animal had been living. We got some valid results, but frustratingly, you can use strontium isotopes to work out where an animal's been living, the, the isotopes present in the rocks get transferred to food and water and animals literally you know, lock the isotopes into their tissues. But the strontium isotope ratio for the kind of Dartmoor area is about the same as it is for the Canadian shield, just by complete fluke. So that didn't help us to work out whether this animal had been living in the wild or not. The morphometrics on the skull demonstrated that the skull was from a Canada lynx. But it's actually kind of two specimens. It's a mounted skin, which is on a taxiderm mount. And then separate from that is the skeleton. Now, normally, as you know, when people build a taxiderm mount, they incorporate lots of the bones into the mount. So we're kind of confused as to why the two things exist as independent entities. And we've never gotten to the bottom of that. At the moment, we think what look like bones in the specimen are replicas of some kind a plaster or something uh, what look like teeth aren't the real teeth the skull is definitely of a canada lynx but uh, not a hundred percent certain that the skin is uh, is as well science never stops you know you've you've never finished a project there's always more analyses you can do I do hope one day to go back to the specimen and x-ray it. And um, Ben Garrard, who's particularly interested in you know, mammal anatomy, he's, he's uh, had a few TV s- series on bone anatomy and stuff. Ben Garrard looked at the specimen a few years back, and he found loads of um, evidence of uh, injury and a really hard life that the, the skeleton of this animal had had while it was in, in captivity. Uh, it had like its toes had been clipped off mm. and its teeth were in really poor condition. It was quite a, a sorry animal when it died. Our main aim was to not just work out, you know, as I've said, what kind of animal it was, but also um, to determine if it you know, it was living wild when it was shot. How long had it been living in the wild? What Could it be regarded as like a long-term resident? Long-term for a lynx means about a decade. They're not that long-lived, as you know. But um, we were hoping that we might, work that out and we kind of couldn't really we couldn't work out that it had, uh, it didn't seem to have been living in the wild for very long but it begs the question uh, how often other similar cases might have happened 
through past decades and centuries and uh, yeah each one is perhaps a set piece one but there, there may well have been others this is just one that we've caught up with that was my motivation for publishing it because near the top of the list when it comes to animals that are good at escaping from captivity are the cats the, the cats are, are brilliant at climbing and sneaking around and getting out of places this is part of that story this is an animal that's, that presumably escaped at some point and lived wild for a time and therefore says something about the british big cat phenomenon great we'll return to that later but for now we'll have a quick touch on this splendid book from uh, columbia university press by mark hallett and john harris on the prowl in search of big cat origins it's a lead into our discussion on the deep time history of cats and we'll come on to the britain and europe perspective but as far as this book is concerned it's very much about the evolutionary history of the cats especially the big ones the pantherins what did you make of it and what are your highlights from it darren i really really like this book mark hallett is a world leading paleo artist best known for his work on dinosaurs but he's done loads of mammals as well i, I know him quite well a uh, interesting fact i have to mention is he he only has one arm Gosh. And despite that, he's a world-leading, you know, famous paleo artist. Yeah, his mammal work is is amazing. Lots of it in this book. And John Harris, co-author, is a, a very well-known paleo mammalogist, uh, best known for his association with um, the La Brea tar pits. And some of you will know that's an oxymoron, the tar pit tar pits. He's strongly associated with Lothagam in, I think, Kenya, you know, a famous uh, mammal site in East Africa, published loads of work on mammals from there. This book is just on specifically the group that they call the pantherins. Other people would rather call those the pantherines. Uh, I, I won't go into the complex reason for that, but this is only on the true big cat. So if you want a book that's on the whole of cat evolution, this is not it. I'm sure you know most people that are interested in big cats and their fossil relatives will be aware of uh, Alan Turner and Mauricio Anton's book, The Big Cats and Their Fossil Relatives, a more uh, rounded review of, of all cats. So this is on the prowl is just on the, the pantherins. And it's kind of split into five sections really briefly. I mean, um, so pantherins are just clouded leopards and then the panthera cats. So, you know, snow leopards, tigers, and then the spotted big cats, lions, leopards, jaguars. Lions are spotted big cats, as most people know. First of all, they review the evolution of cats in general. They talk about anatomy. Our current understanding of cat evolution, the modern cats, that what we call the crown group, that's the group that includes all the living lineages, that's a late Miocene event. So the Miocene is between approximately, say, 20-ish and 8-ish million years ago. And ever since about 2006, genetic studies have, have shown that um, crown cats originated in the late Miocene, so like around about 15 million years ago. One of the, the key take-homes from this book what forms the core of the book, the second and third sections really, are that a series of discoveries made within the last couple of years have shown that the evolution of pantherins is linked to a major geological event that happened at this time, and that's the formation of the Tibetan Plateau. So the collision of India pushes up the Himalayas, the giant uh, Tibetan Plateau is pushed up between, you know, during the Miocene between about 20 and 8 million years ago. Loads of work on loads of different animal groups has shown that lots of Southern Asian mammals that were kind of uplifted on this giant 
plateau evolved a whole load of specializations due to the resulting thinner atmosphere and cooler temperatures. The Tibetan plateau has been called the third pole of the planet because if you think of how important the Arctic has been to the evolution of lots of animals, Antarctica maybe not so much because you know us here in the north we're not so you know interested in uh, penguins and southern seals and whatnot. But uh, the impact these things have had on global climate and the evolution of animal groups is is substantial. And the same for the Tibetan plateau. It, it seems to have been like a kind of training ground or proofing grounds for many lineages that later on were able to, during times of cooler climates, spread around the world. And they were kind of like pre-adapted for cool climate conditions because of their evolution on the Tibetan plateau. This is true for uh, mammoths and woolly rhinos. The argument made in this book is that it was true for pantherins. They reckon that this one group of cats, the pantherins, just the clouded leopard and panther cat clade, they reckon that their like body shape, their physiology, their way of life is to do with adaptation to life on the Tibetan plateau. This is supported by fossils. They're the oldest members of the pantherin clade are from the Tibetan plateau. There's an animal called panthera blythea, I think, which was named in 1910, sorry, 2010 even. The family history of pantherins themselves, the shape of the family tree, is evidence of origination uh, in this in this region. So, if you think of the pantherin family tree as like a you know branching diagram, the clouded leopards, obviously they're southern Asian. They're not necessarily on the Tibetan plateau, but they're in that region. But then the the tigers and snow leopards, they are ancestrally of the Tibetan plateau, and then the other big cats appear to have spread from there. So the third part of the book is what happened after origin on the Tibetan plateau. It's the idea that you've got these various lineages spreading throughout the whole of Asia and then also in across Africa and also throughout the Americas. The fourth part of the book is that a mostly European story to do with the fossil cats that are known from the European cave faunas, you know, France, Germany and the UK. This is where pantherins came into more contact than ever before with saber-tooths, which are a much older cat lineage, and also hyenas and bears. There's all these amazing cases of um, evidence for the actual predatory interaction between cave lions and cave bears and hyenas. Amazing. And then the, um, the fifth part of the book is the impact of humanity. In the broader sense of the term, not just our own species, Homo sapiens, but hominins, because if you've got big cats of various lineages evolving alongside hominins, which are mostly an African group, of course, but have moved out of Africa on several occasions, then you not only have the story of, say, species like you know Neanderthals and Homo heidelbergensis interacting with big cats, you've also then got the, the far more recent stuff, recent the past the 30,000 years or so, that involves <laughs> um, our species affecting the Pleistocene megafauna, that ultimately affecting the predators that were reliant on the megafauna, and then you could say that that attrition caused by our species is continued to today you know it's just been a a gradual reduction of wild animals caused by us until today well we all know where we are now with with the big cats they're all of them in dire trouble and that's the the last part of the book uh, the decline of cats yeah very interesting to see pure scientists if you like turn into social scientists in that latter section discussing the physical impact of human beings on cats 
Because earlier on, there's so much about the, the evolutionary predatory prey relationships and wonderful diagrams about that. And then it becomes man as the main predator having the impact, turning the tables on these great predators from the past. Yeah, I've always been like disappointed is too strong a word. But if you look at books that ever chart the history of any group of animals, you tend to get the same snippets from geological deep time discussed. Then, you know, and it will finish with the, the Pleistocene, you know, the so-called Ice Age animals, and then it will skip to the modern fauna. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What about all that stuff that happened, not only concerning the decline of the Pleistocene megafauna, which happened, you know, late Pleistocene, possibly some of it into the, the early or Holocene, the last 11,700 years or so. But then you've also got this very unusual... I mean, to, to modern eyes, unusual period that's not often discussed. We don't even have a proper name for it. It's been called zooarchaeology, mm -hmm. where you're not talking about humans, so it's not archaeology, but you are talking about a time when there's agricultural, pastoral, nomadic people living alongside still thriving, still abundant megafauna and everything about uh, human culture and folklore and mythology and everything is still affected by their proximity yes. to um to these kinds of animals yeah we were beyond hunter gatherers yet we still had an impact well yeah this will be familiar to your audience and to yourself but the, the fact that animals like you know lions and leopards are animals of say eastern europe you know the balkans and are persisting in probably persisting in places like turkey until the 20th century this is such like a long drawn out thing with us living alongside you know these other animals and interacting with them constantly and and being inspired by them is is a huge story that just isn't really done well often enough there's there's only really a handful of books that really tried to do it mm. so i absolutely agree with you yeah the fact that they covered it at the at the end part of this book is like well done we absolutely need that i'm really pleased that that's been put in there yeah somebody like you you know a lot of the stuff in in, in a book like that but Anything that surprised you, anything really new and you thought, wow, you know, that's, uh, that's adding to my knowledge. Is there anything like that, quickly, that you'd mention? I remember Brian Patterson's book on the famous mainless lions of Savo makes the point that the reason that the European colonists who uh, were building the railway down in Savo, the reason that they thought those lions were so unusual and so you know mysterious lots of speculation about them being you know are they even lions are they some other some other kind of big cat that was because the stereotypical view of lions is this uh, you know kenyan animal that you see in you know every single documentary you ever watch almost everything you ever watch on lions mm. the description and the anatomy might pertain well to that group of lions but for a group of animals well lion taxonomy is is controversial but for one or two or three species, however many species of lions you want to accept, for animals that lived from the, the very southernmost tip of Africa, right across the whole of Eurasia, throughout North America, and possibly Central and Northern South America, that's controversial. For this hugely diverse, widespread animal, think how diverse you know we are, all the different kinds of you know, the looks you have to different people. Lions have that massive variation in appearance um according to like you know local adaptation and lifestyles and so on one or two books say that but where can you actually go to a place that actually talks about that diversity and how those lions are adapted i'm always bothered by the fact that that isn't covered this book has done that 
And again, the illustrations, I'm looking at one of the plates in the book, which illustrates that perfectly. And you just glance and think, wow, they're the same creature, but look at the different distinctions. And only one of them looks like what you'd expect to see in our zoos, for example. Pat on the back for those authors. It's a lovely scholarly work and a a treat of a book to have to dip into. And very affordable. Yeah, yeah, you're right for that kind of book, for a hardback illustrated book. So can we move on to deep history of cats and go on to Britain and Europe? Because there's sort of four things to talk about. There's pumas in Europe, there's um, leopards in Europe, jaguars in Europe, and and the jungle cat, uh, remarkably. Can we first of all talk about uh, pumas in Europe? Is it Puma pardoilis you, you would define it as? Yeah. So this is an animal. It's got a complex taxonomic history, which is the case for so many things. Today, it's Puma pardoides. Discovered in, I think, Somerset, named in 1846-ish by the famous anatomist and paleontologist Richard Owen, later Sir Richard Owen. And he called it uh, Felis pardoides, panther-like cat, you know, incredibly vague name. And then later on, this animal called Schaub's panther was described from, I think, Germany. That was interpreted as a a new genus when some new specimens were found in France. That became known as Viratellurus schaubi, this new short-faced puma-like cat. And then fast forward to uh, early 2000s. A couple of cat researchers said, wait a minute, these are all the same species. And this isn't just a puma-like cat. Viratellurus is a puma. Oh, and it is the same thing as Owen's panther. It belongs in the genus Puma, so that it's a European puma. It turns out that the features that had been regarded as making Viratellurus unusual, the proportions of its face and which teeth it had and such, are characteristic of the genus Puma. After this was noticed, this was by a a cat researcher called, I think he's called Marcus Hemmler, uh, about 2004. He noticed that um, some fossil cats from uh, the Transcaucasus Mountains and Mongolia are the same thing again. So now you've got this European puma. It's not just European, it's in Asia as well. And then more recently at Turner and Anton in that big cat's book, they reckon that a bunch of South African and East African fossil cats described as leopards are actually more specimens of this animal. So they're saying there's like a puma pardoides is in, is in Africa too. It had been thought since the 1980s that obviously today you think of the puma, you think of an American animal. Since the 80s, it had been thought that Pumas have an old world origin because genetics shows that pumas are closest to cheetahs. And of course, cheetahs, asinonics, the pumas are, you know, today they're African and and Asian. We know of fossil cheetahs from Europe as well. There's a giant fossil cheetah known from France and India and, and China. So you've got reasons for thinking that this cheetah puma group is ancestrally African or Eurasian, well, then at some point it's got to cross the Bering Land Bridge to give rise to the American puma. So if you now add in the the fossil animal, puma pardoides is present in Africa and it's present throughout Europe and it's present in Eastern Asia. What probably happened is that the living puma probably evolved in Asia. Uh, We've got no evidence for that from fossils at the moment because it appears fully formed, air quotes, fully formed. It appears in the North American fossil record in the late Pleistocene at around about, I think it's about half a million years old. So pumas moved into North America, then into South America, 
from Asia. There's an added complication here that we'll avoid now, and that's the Jagirundi, because the Jagirundi is, is also part of this group as well. And mm-hmm. What its history is, is confounding variable in this. And it's also thought that North American pumas became extinct, and then North American pumas reinvaded the north from the south. So all North American pumas today are actually South American pumas. <laughs> from our British point of view, pumas prehistorically, going back like half a million years or a million years, deep time, were uh, present in certainly southern England, maybe widespread in UK and elsewhere in uh, Western Europe. And this animal probably didn't look that different from the living puma. Maybe it was more spotty or darker brown than the living puma concolor. We, we, just, we just don't know. But yes, pumas are European natives. So that's exciting. We're talking Pleistocene, so it's an animal of the Ice Ages. Pleistocene is about two and a half million years ago until about 11,700 years ago. I think that some of these Puma pardoides fossils are from the Pleistocene. As someone who mostly works on dinosaurs, you know, the Pleistocene is like gardening to me. It's like, you know, it's really shallow <laughs> uh, stuff that's recent history. In real terms, in terms of what it means to us today, Two million years ago is an absurdly long time ago. And saying that an animal is a Pleistocene animal doesn't put it anywhere close to modern times. This, of course, is relevant to any discussions we have about you know, things like rewilding, where we're talking all the time about bringing in animals that were uh, present in Western Europe, the UK specifically, within recent times. And what's the cutoff point? What would you regard as recent times? Is, is it the last... I don't know, the last couple of centuries? Are we talking about the whole of the Holocene, the last 11,700 years or so? I would say that we probably shouldn't include the Pleistocene in that. Yeah, otherwise we're talking about theme parks rather than interacting with humans as we know our civilizations now. Yeah, the Pleistocene world is different from the Holocene world in some significant ways. Okay, can we go on to leopards in Europe? Again, there's a, you know, more of a history than people will realise, I suspect. Yeah, so excuse me, but I wish I could just off the top of my head say specific locations and dates and stuff, and I, I can't. But vaguely speaking, the living African leopard, Panthera pardus, is known as a fossil from various locations across Western Europe. Pretty sure it's definitely known from France. Well, there is, of course, one famous cave painting. I've forgotten the location, but there's, there's one really nice spotty leopard cave illustration which is probably that cave art is very variable in age anything from like i don't know fifty thousand years ago until like twenty thousand years ago so thousands and thousands of years people were producing this stuff that leopard image is i i've got a feeling it's from chevet cave in in france i'm cheating because i've revved up an old laptop with one of your presentations on and i'm looking at that very picture you're talking about and it is remarkable there's no doubt it is a, a leopard does it say the location? It doesn't, no, but we'll put it on the website so people can look on the website. We'll add it there. The thing that's always interested me about that leopard is this leopard looks really distinctive because its belly is shown as really quite prominently unspotted and it looks as if it had like a, a pretty extensive white belly. Mm. And I think there's something about it which creates something in the illustration, makes it look shaggy coated. Those features make it superficially resemble an Amur leopard, you know, one of the sort of, you know, cool adapted uh, Eastern Asian ones, which kind of makes sense uh, for the climate. 
It's been said from their bones that these European leopards are most similar to African leopards, more so than any of the Asian or Middle Eastern forms, which could hint at some, you know, surprisingly complex biogeographic history. You know, maybe, you know, we know for, well, we think for lions that lions moved out of Africa in several successive waves, you know, the same as uh, our species did. So it could be that that was the case for leopards as well. We, We don't really know. The leopard was definitely present across Western Europe, including the UK, during the Pleistocene. All of these Pleistocene big cats persisted into the late Pleistocene. They don't get to the so-called modern age, the Holocene. They don't get to like the last 11,000 years or so. Uh, Our youngest records of them are around about 30,000 years ago-ish. They're spending tens of thousands of years living alongside us, but they're not into the, the modern agricultural post-Pleistocene age. Exactly how recently leopards persisted across southern Europe is still a bit uncertain. I'm not sure this has been studied that well since the early 2000s. There's some studies which report uh, leopard bones from, say, you know, northern Italy and stuff and are meant to be a couple of thousand years old, like, say, 3,000 years old. Some people have said that this is evidence that the leopard was persisting, you know, in places like the Balkans and northern Italy, you know, the fringes of the Mediterranean until really recent times, which, you know, you can well believe, I could absolutely believe that, Mm. especially given their their persistence, you know, in countries like Iran and uh, India and Afghanistan. And the Anatolian leopard uh, debate. Yeah, absolutely. Other people have said that maybe these northern Italian leopards uh, could have been brought in from Africa by the Romans. I mean, we know for sure that the Romans did bring in tens of thousands of African animals to uh, various places in the, the Roman Empire. To my knowledge, there isn't any demonstrable proof that we found evidence for animals like African leopards in Italy. I think in the same breath... Some people, particularly those you know with an interest in British big cats, have said, "Well, wait a minute, Britain was part of the the Roman Empire." Yeah, definite uh, mosaic illustrations of both spotted and black leopards and, and other cats, but um, particularly leopards. Yeah, I've heard about those, but I've never seen them. Yeah, Worcester in Gloucestershire. We'll put that up on the website as well under this um, uh, under this episode. Got to be watch our time, but very quickly, this jaguar in Europe. Yeah, we didn't just have leopards, we definitely had jaguars as well. Without going into all the details, the history of the the jaguar, again, you know, today quintessentially American cat, ancestrally not American at all. Um, Like the leopard and the lion, the jaguar evolved in Eurasia, probably possibly in Africa. There's fossils of certainly jaguar-like big cats uh, from across Eurasia and Africa. And there's a European animal. It was first named from Germany. I think it was named in like the 1930s. It's got a fairly awkward name, Panthera gombasagoensis. Its best European location is Westbury Submendip, the name of the cave system in, in Westbury in, in Somerset. There's lots of fossils of Panthera gombasagoensis from that region. And people have always people as in you know like experts on Pleistocene mammals they've always called this animal a European jaguar and then within the last sort of 15 years or so some experts on fossil big cats have said you know it's not just you know a relative of the jaguar it probably is similar enough to be the same species 
this depends on how your speciesometer is calibrated. This is a thing that you know people argue about all the time mm-hmm. uh, in biology and paleontology. But um, it could be the same species as the jaguar, but it's certainly very similar to it. It's got the distinctive, really robust, broad, powerful skull of um, modern jaguars. We've got evidence for this animal, like I say, across Europe, Asia. It presumably gave rise to the modern jaguar population, which then you know, moved into the Americas, and then all the others go extinct. So what looks to us like a, an American animal is certainly not. That's just its kind of you know, relict part of its range. But yeah, if you were moving around in even just southern England, not in the wilds of you know, uh, the north, of course, southern England was heavily wooded and, and whatnot back then. Mm. But um, yeah, we had leopards jaguars pumas we haven't mentioned lions but of course it's well known you know uh, southern england uh, definitely had uh, the lion uh, also yeah we had jaguars until late in the pleistocene again until about thirty thousand years ago probably but they weren't chomping caimans and uh, turtles but other substantial prey the european pond uh, turtle actually would have been present in the yeah the yeah. warmer parts of the pleistocene that's known yeah i mean jaguars uh, phenomenal animals they can do just about anything turn their proverbial hands to the predation of, of anything then finally in the historical records that the felis chouse the jungle cat much much smaller and something which again is reported in britain we've done a an episode on jungle cat um, reports we shouldn't just regard that as an asian southern asian cat no i mean for all the animals we've mentioned so far you could say that you've got the knowledge of the fossil animals first. And then, you know, those of us interested in British big cats have discussed the fossil species within the context of the modern phenomenon. But for the jungle cat, it's the other way round. We have known certainly, I think it's since the late 80s, isn't it, that, that there are jungle cats being seen and killed and found dead yeah. in various parts of the UK. Because of breeding for the chausse, mainly, presumably. I've lost track of how many specimens it is now that have been wild-type jungle cats or swamp cats that have been killed or at least three. found dead. At least, yeah. The discovery of the swamp cat, jungle cat, as a British native is a recent discovery and a surprising one. It's also known from Germany, from the, the Pleistocene of Germany. There's no indication that it survived into the Holocene. So again, it's not an animal that's at the edge of history, but in the broader perspective, you could regard it as, you know, part of the british fauna certainly of the pleistocene yeah it had a niche here and it was larger than the scottish wildcat sort of niche it was a small meso predator yeah so it would be an enemy of the european wildcat occupied the next guild up but yeah the the fact that you've got um yeah those species are living alongside one another i don't call them scottish wildcats you know european wildcat because as you know it was present across the whole of britain including ireland uh, obviously until far more recently than the rest of the animals we've been talking about. But yeah, or swamp cat or jungle cat, Phyllis Chouse is on the list as a Pleistocene British native. That was a surprise when it was announced. A lady called Daniel Shreve, and I think it was published 2004, 2006, something like that. But yeah, relatively recent discovery. Yeah, thank you. Let's draw some conclusions and thoughts back to British big cats now and into the future. I think one of the issues here is evolution and mixtures and adaptation. We shouldn't discount mixtures, oddities, quirks and hybrids. And if there are some hybrids, are there some hybrids that have actually become consistent? I know you're pretty open-minded on that, Darren. 
if you pay attention to um, eyewitness accounts, um, including some really quite detailed close-up accounts, doesn't sound like they're describing your, your classic tubby-bodied, you know, big, unusually tubby animal that people are familiar with due to, you know, seeing them in captivity or, or on TV. People are often talking about very rangy, leggy, uh, slender cats. Cats are obviously supremely adaptable. A hypothetical puma-type cat or leopard-type cat, a hypothetical animal living in the British countryside is going to have no trouble finding food. There's a vast amount of it. But it's not going to be having such a life of luxury that it's going to be able to pack on the pounds and you know become some prize specimen. It is probably going to be like a very well-exercised animal that's had a tough life. So I kind of think that might account for some of what people describe. But then the fact that some of these descriptions do sound slightly odd in terms of the length of the tail, portions of the limbs, subtle things sometimes, like the shapes of the ears. I pay attention to the fact that quite a few witnesses do talk about pointed ears more often than you'd expect, even in black cats. Does it mean that we're actually sometimes talking about members of some of the less well-known big cat populations? So again, you think of the leopard, and most of us think of either Indian leopards or East African leopards, but Southern Asian ones, the Southeast Asian ones, they can be, and some of the African ones as well, they can be surprisingly small relative to what people expect. You note this yourself in in your book, Rick, and they will also look very, I was going to say alien, but thought better of it. They they (laughs) look quite, (laughs) quite odd relative to what people expect. And I do wonder if that is part of it, especially given that Britain is almost almost unique in the world in the virtually uh, due to our aggressively colonial uh, background every animal from across the whole of the world has been bought here at some time or another like we said cats are good at escaping and mm. you know have definitely been released at times so i do wonder if that is part of it are we seeing members of unusual populations they would only have to breed here for a couple of generations contingent with this like, like i said this relatively tough lifestyle involving lots of exercise and stuff for you to get you know these rangy leggy animals and then the hybridization thing the more evidence that's come in over the past couple of decades on the rampant hybridization that happens in wild living big mammals of all groups it turns out that you know most familiar like large carnivores Uh, This is documented for, you know, uh, bears and uh, wolves and coyotes in particular, Mm. and some foxes as well. They're kind of like hybrid swarms. And it's like they might prefer to only, you know, stick to their own and mate with them as their own species. But if they're on heat, if they're desperate, if they're not able to find a mate of the right kind, more or less anything of the right size and shape will do. And of course, cats are so unusual in that they have this amazing uh, hybridization potential. It seems that almost anything goes. Mm. Uh, you know, you, Obviously, you've got confounding variation in body size that prevents some pairings, but anything like above the size of like a lynx or a small leopard or puma, they in theory can hybridize. This is speculation, absolutely. But the fact that people report animals that look odd and sound odd you know in terms of the vocalizations they make and so on i am intrigued by the possibility that there could be some unusual hybridization that we wouldn't expect we know it can happen in captivity you may be aware of similar cases i know of cases where um hairs have been analyzed i i always argue that for alleged big cat hairs it's best to the hairs of any alleged big animal don't rely on genetics, don't rely on morphology. You have to have data from both 
to um, you know come up with a, f- a confident answer. Mm. And I'm aware of cases where analysed hairs do look like unusual combinations of, um, say, uh, puma and leopard. There are such hairs existing in collections. It's a really intriguing and, and valid idea, and it would explain some of the some part of the phenomenon. Yeah, potentially much more messy than we might think and uh, realise, which makes this scientific baseline work very tricky, doesn't it? Because if you haven't got matches and you, you've only got uh, small samples to work from, you haven't got any trend analysis very very challenging even though this is you know frontiers of science and evolution and ad- adaptation that we ought to be trying to struggle to do here yes equally intriguing you know have we got an evolving subspecies of black leopard here have we got uh, an isolated population of pumas which may sometimes produce black melanistic ones you know i don't think we can discount yeah. that, those thoughts they're radical and too extreme for some people but i think we simply must be open-minded to that even though i, I am frequently uh, surprised at how consistent the reports of the main three cats are there are enough quirks and oddities to make you think gosh there's something else happening as well but uh, so difficult to catch up with them and of course some people who have um decent evidence which are counted primary evidence are very reluctant to release it and reveal it they see it as sensitive and and uh, and tricky and challenging so that that adds to the frustration well for as long as i've been interested in british big cats academically and for as long as i've been actually involved in academia myself i have been without wanting to be rude, you know, I've been frustrated by quite a few people in the British Big Cat community because I know they've got the data and I've seen it myself. Uh, talking about hairs, I'm, I'm aware of a couple of cases where DNA has successfully been extracted and I'm aware of scat and bite marks on bones, all of which I personally have found compelling. In the past, the people I've tried to move on this, I, I've been unsuccessful in getting them to put the time and effort in to like push that stuff towards publication. Science does set the bar very high in terms of the level of evidence that's considered uh, acceptable if you want to get something published. Not only do you have to put in all this time and effort, sometimes at great personal expense, you know, getting things analysed, uh, you also have to give up the material. It needs to go to a collection where it can be retained for further study and for testing by others if needed. Those things combined with I'm not going to badmouth anyone, but I have found it's not uncommon for people interested in mystery animals to be sort of almost anti-science and and sometimes anti-scientific community. So that's been a a problem in the past. I'm I'm not necessarily referring to anyone who's active in the field today. Certainly the last time I I made an effort to get anywhere on this, it it didn't work out. But the evidence is there for those people who are super sceptical about it. I think it's just a, a long term. It's a slow burn issue, and I think if we're persistent, you know, we'll some some of these things that are up people's sleeves will drop out eventually, and we'll add to the collection sample. And uh, I know that the toothpick analysis, the carnassial triangular sort of imprints on the bones. I'm involved as one of the brokers in that work, and we haven't managed to do the academic paper yet. But um, a recent completed um, dissertation student is going to lead um, the write up of the work. Although we're late, later than we'd like to be, the fact is that there's now a greater number of samples from a greater number of locations for, on a greater number of prey species. So, in fact, later in the day, that academic paper is going to be stronger and more robust because of its sample size and sample distribution. So there's, there's that kind of benefit. 
when the toothpick work is um, published, it's going to be influential because it will be a major breakthrough, I think. I can't wait for that, that work to be, to be published. I mean, I find that really compelling. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it's it's also nice because people can actually look for that. It's it's a classic case where everybody can be a citizen science. And if they're out and about, then they see bone remains and they think there could be big cat involvement. They can check themselves and report it in. And that's what's been happening. And I know some podcast listeners are looking out for toothpits on the bones, which is terrific. I mean, we're all in it together. It's a team effort. And um, that's what citizen science is all about. Yes, I would definitely be writing about it when it is published. I really look forward to that. Great. We're petering out, Darren. Finally, is there anything else you wanted to say that we've not covered that you wanted to emphasise in terms of your perspective on the British big cat subject? We didn't mention, of course, the Eurasian lynx presence in the UK, but the fact that that species was present certainly way into geologically modern times, way into the Holocene, that reason means that unlike the other species we've been talking about, the true big cats, the Eurasian lynx is a, is a viable rewilding candidate, given that it's, it, air quotes, it should be here. And it's, you know, it's, it's habitat destruction and hunting caused by us that have uh, caused its, its removal. It should be here along with a long list of Holocene animals we had. And although... I would argue that you could say that because of the sightings, there may be a viable population already of Eurasian lynx in some parts of some regions of Britain. Even so, uh, to have um, that population supplemented by new introductions that would be radio collared, we'd then know their territories, we'd know where they went and what they might bump into that isn't radio collared. I sometimes get the impression that um, rewilding is regarded as well, wouldn't it be nice if dot, 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 you know, wouldn't it be fun if dot, 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 but it's like, well, there is actually a need to have an ecological need to have um, at least a mid-sized predator uh, in the British uh, wilds uh, again, because, uh, well, I think, you know, we're all aware of how many deer we've got of uh, about a seven or eight species, most of which aren't native which um, do have a significant ecological impact. And we also know, you know, you'll be aware of this and you've covered it before, the fact that um, when um, uh, lynxes, and, and also wolves as well, actually, when people have discovered in parts of continental Europe that these animals are persisting in you know, fragmented populations, nobody knows they're there. They have like no impact on, no real impact on, on livestock. They're never seen by people. They're so cryptic. I like the, the case of the Italian wolves, where there was a, um, a push to see if they could reintroduce a northern Italian population. And there was substantial um, outcry from farmers. No, we don't want wolves reintroduced back here. That's ridiculous. And then the same team that was talking about reintroducing them then discovered that there already were wolves there and they never this particular population had never gone extinct, which meant they didn't need to reintroduce them. But nobody had noticed that they were persisting. I mean, okay, you could argue that what with the uh, the mountains uh, in in Italy, that uh, its situation is not quite the same as as that of the UK. But on the other hand, you know, maybe it's not that different. I mean, we're not talking about putting these animals in like downtown Oxford or something. We are talking about in uh, appropriate open uh, spaces with very low uh, human population density. So yeah, that's a uh, yeah. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I don't want to like, you know, veer into kind of, you know, conspiracy territory, 
but um, I, I wouldn't super surprise me if, if there if there was an effort to covertly reintroduce lynxes and maybe some other um, animals that are part of this discussion. I always say to the advocates of these uh, reintroduction candidates that yeah, there may be more that have spilt out accidentally or deliberately, irresponsibly, than you imagine. And also, don't thump the table to want it to happen sort of overnight. If the ideas are being discussed, eventually the genie will get out of the bottle somehow, presumably. And also... We need discussion time. We need time to adapt, to train and to manage the countryside in slightly different tweaked ways as a result. For example, beavers, uh, when you go to places in Europe that have them, you know, they have farm advisors that um, hire or donate electric fences to people. That's all you need, you know, to stop the beaver, you know, going through a dike or going through um, a water course on a golf course that where it's not wanted. You know, you could, there are little tweaks in the management of the landscape that can happen as a result mm. of some of these creatures. It you know, don't, doesn't have to be some alarmist intolerance. Yeah. But So it is about adapting our own sort of thought processes. I think if we're prone to not like something, whatever it is in life, we sort of exaggerate the impacts. But, but likewise, I think if we're prone to like something, we can be soft on its impacts as well. So it's not like there's no issues, but they're, they're management issues. And um, I think what you're driving at is there are ecosystem functional benefits from from these animals that are reintroduction candidates. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. It's so ironic that you know that we may have um, more big cats here, more medium sized big cats here than we know about, and they're not causing many issues. And of course, once they one or two do, it's a disproportional impact in the media and discussion. And yeah, there's the challenge, isn't it? It's a cultural challenge as much as a scientific and practical one. I'm sure you think about this all the time, but, uh, you know, imagine a future where it's demonstrated that there are non-native cats living in the UK. We're absolutely 100% sure you can satisfy the, the most rejectionist of sceptics. Okay, where do we stand on uh, <laughs> on rewilding now? What, what do yeah. we do now? It's like, oh, well, first of all, okay, clearly it works, as in, as in it works, as in you can have the animals there and minimal impact and secondly do we actually need them if we do have them already yeah and what is their status you know that that's why i'm i'm always wary of the non-native term lots of things that are non-native don't have much impact we just um, tend to highlight the ones that do have ecosystem impacts and crush the, the niches of other fellow wildlife species I think if these animals are adapting and evolving, maybe they're demonstrating that you know that they have got a niche here which isn't threatening yeah. and problematic for others. So that that the non-native label is a bit tricky. I, I think. I think I might probably move to wider use of the term naturalized. I mean, there's there's loads of animals that I, I'm really familiar with. I see every day that aren't technically an example is um the tube web spider segestria it, it lives on like every house here i mean i'm in southampton it lives on every house here it's the same in bristol bath london plymouth a big black spider that lives in a tube it's not a native animal but it's you know everywhere it's been here for decades it's not going away it's part of our fauna. So, and, and we speak of those animals as naturalised. There's a long list of them. There's things that are honorary natives, aren't there? Um, brown, brown hares would be an example. You know, we all love brown hares, really, don't we? Yes, that's a slightly controversial example. But certainly our, our deer are. And, um, you know, the, the only two native deer we've got are the red and the roe. And even um, most of the populations of them that exist here are non-native. They're mostly continental ones that were introduced by the Victorians. Yeah, nature's more of a cocktail than we imagine. 
Darren, we've um, run out of time, but I'm sure listeners are so pleased that we've had you on and, and benefited from your sort of university lecture, but it's uh, a university lecture that will stick in the mind and enrich us. So thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Hope we can keep in touch. We'll a- add those uh, key points to the website listing under this uh, edition. And thanks ever so much for your time and great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great uh, being a guest. Thanks a lot. Okay, next episode, we will be deep in the woods and forests of Shropshire in the west edge of the Midlands, close to the Welsh border. We'll be with James. He's had several recent sightings and incidents with big black cats, presumably leopards, and with puma-type cats. We'll especially hear about James's nighttime tracking and his vigils in the forest environment, sometimes up close with a leopard perhaps. So hope you can join us back for episode 55 from Shropshire. Righto, we're signing off now. So a big thanks once again to our guest Darren Naish and thank you everyone for listening. Take care and bye for now.